0: the steps of city hall to the hallways of the state capitol from the shores of lake erie to the montauk lighthouse it's 5 p.m in the five boroughs and all across the 62 counties time for max and murphy your interview and call and show about the policies politics, and people of New York City and New York State. I'm
1: Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org. And this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Good to see you. How you doing? I'm doing well, Ben. Yeah? Yourself? Uh, pretty well. Not too bad. Uh, I'm liking the signs of spring that we have upon us. It does it's feel like, like
0: it's her opening day tomorrow for the MLB. Very baseball exciting. Baseball
1: is upon us. A good sign. And just, uh, you know, it's light later. It's a little warmer. There's, you know, a new... Uh, Giddy up in my step.
0: <laughs> We've all noticed it. Yes. I'm glad you have acknowledged yes. that. You've admitted it.
1: Going it's from the first eleven to thirteen, <laughs> uh, as I do around this time of year. And
0: around this time of year, we also, of course, as the days lengthen and the air warms, and your step gets that giddy app we yep. all love so much, the state hurdles toward its annual budget deadline of April 1st, which it has met with uh, more uh, precision in recent years. This year could be different. We don't know, but there's a lot on the table today. Much of the same stuff that was on the table when we spoke last week.
1: Yeah. You know, uh, just on the timeliness aspect, that has actually been one of the most important hallmarks of Governor Andrew Cuomo's tenure. He has gotten state government working again to some degree. Uh, perhaps you'd say to a significant degree in terms of getting a state budget done on time. And they've either all been on time or very close to on time during his tenure. This will be his ninth year uh, as he starts his third term. So just that alone is something people sometimes lose sight of. But, you know, the fact that state government was a lot more messy before he he came in is is something noteworthy. Um,
0: At the same time, just to stop at that point. I
1: was about to... Give a caveat, but you go first. <laughs> I'll give the
0: caveat. So uh, it has been a hallmark of Cuomo's governorship, and that was a point of pride in his first couple of years. And of course, there are many years when the budget was severely delayed. And I would say that was one of many symptoms of dysfunction in the state before Cuomo and a lot of other changes occurred. Um, but I think it's been, the point has been made in, in some more recent years that while it is an important goal, uh, it would be a mistake to attach too much importance to it. If it's a matter of another 24 hours or a couple of days to get the budget that affects 18 point something million people um, and it means kind of losing the streak, well, that's that's probably OK. And I think most, most folks in Albany have said that. I don't know if, if uh, Cuomo has, has copped to that yet, but
1: well he he's made comments indicating that i mean sometimes i think he says you know he'd rather have the right budget than an on-time budget i think he's playing some of his usual games when he says stuff like that because it all depends on his leverage point sometimes you know he th- says that it's essential to get it done on time but what i what my caveat was going to be that often timeliness has been a sacrifice for actually reviewing the deals that come together at the 11th hour. And it's really problematic that the governor uses almost annually what's called a message of necessity to pass the budget bills, where basically the legislators who are voting on them don't even know all the details. Mm -hmm. They've agreed in principle on, on the broad strokes mostly, the majority conferences in the Assembly and the Senate. They've agreed on the principles of the key outstanding issues. Their leaders have made those deals with Cuomo in the, in the back room. And again, you know, the final budget deals, that's where they have to happen. Uh, there can be more transparency, but when you're finally locking down final details of policy and spending, you know, they're going to happen in a private room with only a smallish group of people. They can't, all, not everything can happen out in public. But What happens is they agree on those things in principle, and then they start voting Mm -hmm. with these messages of necessity coming in from the governor that waive the three-day waiting period that they're required to have. And those messages are really only supposed to be for emergencies, if you need to get some funding to an area that's been hit by a natural disaster or something like that. So that is absurd. That is problematic, and that has been done year after year. Both to say the budget's on time, but also to avoid more public scrutiny. Right, it's a way of
0: exercising power in the government's prerogative. And I think for folks who are, you know, who have active social lives and don't spend their time looking at the budget as, hey. as you and I do, uh, speaking for myself, uh, you know, the state budget is there are a couple of things for folks to understand it, it is not one. It's not one thing. It's it's a bunch of different uh, pieces of legislation that cover different aspects of the operation of state government, um, and also the budget in New York is. An omnibus package that often includes a lot of things that one would not necessarily think are part of the budget. For instance, we're talking a lot this year about uh, conge- not congestion pricing, sorry, criminal justice reform, uh, things that would have some potential budgetary impact, but are chiefly policies of a different nature. But they get wrapped into the budget because of some custom that has developed in New York State over the past 20 years or so. It isn't where everything has to get decided, but a lot of complicated stuff not having to do with taxing and spending gets rolled into the budget.
1: You know, this is the first year in Governor Cuomo's tenure where there's a clear Democratic majority in the Assembly, Democratic majority in the state Senate, and he's not doing this triangulation thing as much. He's still doing it somewhat, but— the, the level of um, intensity around compromise for the budget really doesn't necessarily have to be there. And that's something that the some legislators, including Assembly Speaker Carl Hastie, have pointed out that said, we don't have a Republican Senate anymore. So we don't have to jam everything into a budget deal where everybody has to make a bunch of compromises. Then we just put it all through.
0: Right. Big, ugly, as they call it. Yeah. Sometimes. And then
1: you do that again in the end of the legislative session in June, and you've got your two big deals, and that's almost everything that gets done. We've already seen this year that the two Democratic majorities were able to come in, pass a bunch of stuff that had been on the shelf for a while. Cuomo signed some of it, will sign other parts or, you know, and and it sort of has shown that it's a different era if they want it to be, that they can continue to do policy um, outside of the budget. I will – I have mixed feelings on this though because – Cuomo is right when he's recently said the budget deadline also gives you a deadline to make deals, to make compromises, to come to some decisions. Otherwise, you can just keep talking about it forever and he's right.
0: Right. As journalists, we know the deadlines, as annoying as they can (laughs) be, uh, do, do come in handy now and then. For listeners wondering what the show is going to be about today, we are talking about the state budget. It is what everyone is talking about in policy circles, but it's not the only thing. We're going to discuss the possibility that the city will be revising its charter to include comprehensive planning. That's one possible proposal uh with Elena Conte from the Pratt Center, talking about that uh, very interesting, potentially transformative idea for the city. And then we'll be talking to Bronx Borough President Ruben Diaz Jr. about borough jails, about his own powers under the charter, about a lot of other things that are popping involving him. Uh, we'll be taking your calls throughout. The number here is 212-209-2877. For the next few minutes, we're going to try to talk about the many different tentacles of this uh, budget monster that folks are working on. Last week, we focused on marijuana legalization that
1: seemed to be off the table. It seems now like it might kind of be back on. It's, it's unclear. Nothing's clear. The, the, you know, Democrats, Republicans, whoever's in charge in Albany, nothing's clear at this point in the year the, things are very fluid. Things can drop off the table, be put back on the table. Nobody should be conclusive until a budget deal is done. So the governor can go on the radio and say marijuana's out. He might be saying that as a as a way to negotiate. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people try to apply leverage in various ways. Marijuana seemed like it was not happening based on the governor's comments, really. But then you have legislators saying, I don't know what the governor's talking about. I don't think we're that far off. So we'll see what happens with that. We'll see what happens with congestion pricing. I think that's the one that that they're going to get done. And that really does seem to necessitate to be part of the budget but there's congestion pricing marijuana uh, criminal justice reform as you mentioned I'm not sure I see that one coming together for the budget but again it is decision time and Cuomo is also right when he said something along the lines of you know let's make a compromise and if you're a legislator and people in your district are not that happy about it blame me you can put it. You can blame the governor, right? Because it's the budget. Give us some cover, right? You know, right. So, so those are a few of the outstanding issues. Um, what else? Uh,
0: you know, people obviously still talking about campaign finance reform. Right. Right. It doesn't seem likely sure. that's going to come up. The possibility of a public financing system. They um, might.
1: They the, the latest signs on that are that they're going to put some language in that they commit to doing public campaign financing and then figure out the details. Yes through a commission or right. who knows
0: what. Right, right. Which uh, Merrill control yeah. of schools, likely to be renewed with some strings attached. Obviously, there's talk about the, the property tax cap, education funding. Um, at the casinos thing seems to have receded somewhat though. Uh, yeah. It, maybe that's just because of the swirl of other things we're talking about.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things like casinos, pied terre tax, you know, some of these things where people are, they're trying to come up with ways to raise revenue because the state could be in some serious trouble with slowed receipts. Uh, people changing taxpayers changing behavior. We don't mm-hmm. know. We talked to Tom right. DiNapoli, the comptroller, about this a couple of weeks ago. We won't know more for a while, but they're crafting the state budget without knowing. So, you know, and not, they're just, looking not just for ways possible, to raise revenue,
0: not just the possible recession, but but an uh, an acknowledgement of some pressing needs right now uh, with the MTA, and that's one of the oh yeah the Peter tax along with illegal. Of marijuana congestion pricing, uh, some of the other uh, revenue, new revenue gathering measures they've talked about was going to go into that into that pot.
1: Yeah, so uh, you know, part of the reason today's show, as you outlined, we're focusing mostly on actually New York City stuff, is because things are so in flux in Albany. It doesn't actually make that much sense for us to talk about these issues and such today. So we're focusing on city issues. we to be joined by our first guest momentarily. Stay tuned, folks, for the second half of the show. when We talk to Ruben Diaz Jr. A lot to talk to him about. We've been trying to talk to him for a while. We finally got him, which is good. Um, And then we'll, of course, come back and we assume there'll be a state budget deal by the deadline of the new fiscal year, which is April 1st. And we'll come back next week and dissect some of the decisions that are made. Shifting to
0: the city and our first guest to set the scene, what we're talking about here is uh, part of the ongoing process now of a 2019 charter revision. There's a... A commission. There was one last year. You might, if you voted in November, you voted on three ballot questions generated by that. That was a mayoral con- commission. Now we have a commission that was convened by City Council Speaker Corey John- Johnson, involves appointees by a lot of different officials, and they're looking at a broad map of city policy on financing, on elections, on the balance of power among city officeholders, and on the land use process. And one of the proposals in the land use process is around the possibility of. Uh, adopting comprehensive planning in New York City, which is something that New York City has not done and is a controversial idea just because it is something New York City has not done. And so we're going to bring on now Elena Conte from the Pratt Center. She's the director of policy there. Elena, welcome to Max and Murphy.
2: Um, hi, good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks for joining us. Thanks for being on. So talk about, before we get into the to the, the guts of this idea, the coalition that Pratt is part of. Talk about uh, that, that gathering of, of advocates and, and kind of what's motivating that.
2: Sure, absolutely. So we're a part of the Thriving Communities Coalition, and it's a combination of uh, grassroots groups in low-income communities of color and advocacy uh, organizations, uh, planning organizations, such as ourselves, that have come together. We're coordinated by ANHD, uh, the Association for Neighborhood Housing Development, and we've both done sort of an analysis of what is happening in the city, um, in particular uh, in low-income communities of color, and what are some of the root causes, and kind of came together around a set of principles to uh, call for changes that would address some of those issues, um, in, in the charter revision process.
0: So talk about the way things work now and kind of what's wrong with it, right? The city is is growing by leaps and bounds. The the workforce is growing. The population is growing. Um, A lot of problems we worried about 20 years ago don't seem to be problems if it's, you know, rampant crime. Uh, um, Other issues have also receded. Um, What is wrong about the way New York City does its planning now? How does this manifest itself? Sure.
2: Um, Well, it's really um, phenomenally, outstandingly uh, separated how anything that falls under the category of planning is done in the city of New York, right? So right now we're both failing to meet the needs of existing residents, right, and we're failing to plan um uh, holistically for the growth that is anticipated the climate change that is already happening um so essentially we're in a situation where it's as though the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing when it comes to planning and policy and the folks that are bearing um, the greatest brunt of that are low-income communities of color um, because of the long legacy of uh, unmet needs right and racist planning decisions that have left them left them um, with baseline conditions that are inappropriate for um, uh, just a baseline uh, standard of living, Um, but really it's a problem that affects all of us um, because we have major challenges as a city ahead of us, um, and we need to be tackling them together and recognizing that we are one city, and if we aim at a set of goals, uh, we can reach those goals together. But if we stay broken up into all of these uh, disconnected um, processes and questions uh, that aren't um, transparent, that aren't participatory, we're never going to to rise to the
0: occasion. Because right now, just to, for people who don't pay attention to this on a daily basis, Absolutely. the city it, it has a planning commission, it has a planning department, Mayor de Blasio has released a lot of plans, but they go neighborhood by neighborhood. There's a plan for East New York, there's a plan for East Harlem, um, and they address different aspects of city policy they're mainly rooted in questions about what development will be permitted uh, but they're not connected to any sort of a, a whole at least not one that we've developed in any transparent way that's the that's the critique right and and so what would comprehensive planning what is what does that mean and what would that look like in New York
2: um yeah I just I, uh, your description of it really hit the nail on the head I just want to highlight that it's not really as though you know uh, the city has you know, come to East New York and said, we want to do a plan for you. What the city did was come to East New York and say, we want to do this development here. And so let's engage you in a very narrow set of questions that are limited around this topic. Um, and, uh, and that's, that's not what planning is, right? That's just about land use, um, development. But the, um, but what would comprehensive planning do, right? So comprehensive planning is, uh, First of all, it's not a plan to the level of detail where it comes down to sort of the block and lot, right? But it's an opportunity for us to um, dream and articulate together about what our aspirational goals are for a city, right? And then to actually set those goals numerically in terms of equity, right? So it begins with the principles of equity and fairness and then um, uh, takes a, 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 a data-based, detailed, participatory look, at what is the baseline of what is happening in the city, right, holistically and at a neighborhood level. So it enables neighborhoods to say in a much more systematic way than they're getting to say now when they're just being asked for a list of, like, things that they would like, right? Um, But it enables uh, neighborhoods to really look deeply and say, here's what we're experiencing, here's what the data is showing us, here's what our stories from our neighbors are showing us, and here's what we see our neighborhood-level needs are, right? Right. Uh, and then they get to participate with uh, a look across the city uh, to see where they fit into the whole, to see what are the questions that are happening with the whole, and to come together and say, okay, so as a whole, as a city, here are the things that we need to to tackle um, to meet our existing needs and to meet our future needs, and here's what this means in terms of um, how we're going to distribute uh, um, uh, our investments um, the things that we need to meet those needs across the city and then let's figure out together neighborhood by neighborhood what that means so well let me just pause
1: there Did that yeah no that's good i i, I guess yeah. Um, yeah. no i was i was wondering if you're going to go go here and i'll i'll ask you to go here which is um give some specifics in terms of the pieces of the puzzle so i mean are we talking about everything are there are there just some broad you know is it about environmental resiliency housing uh what else i mean you know what are we what would be included in this type of planning i mean is it down to everything from bike lanes to parking to playgrounds you know what are we including here
2: sure well on the citywide look um it is looking at the the larger categories right so it's climate change and resilience, um, it's housing need, it's jobs, it's the state of our aging infrastructure, it's um, uh, school segregation, right, and and uh, spatial inequality. It's all of these sort of big pieces where we get to, to look at um, uh, across the board what is happening, right? And so, for example, it's an opportunity to integrate um, the questions of, uh, housing affordability with homelessness, with public housing, which right now are in completely separate silos, right, in terms of how they're dealt with uh, bureaucratically. But we understand, uh, obviously, how all of those are, are, are related. When we um, are at the neighborhood level, right, what folks raise up can include some of those things, um, but the very specific plans are something that um, come uh, after and later, um, uh, from the Comprehensive Planning Framework. But part of what we're so excited about and why we're advocating for this, because I do think that a lot of times when people hear Comprehensive Planning Framework and then they hear Pratt Center for Community Development, what does this you know a, a bottom-up sort of uh, organization have to do with something called Comprehensive Planning? It sounds like they're um, uh, not along the same track. Uh, but in fact, in the vision of um, Comprehensive Planning that we're... we're advancing with the coalition, um, it's really an opportunity um, and a place where community-based planning would actually get official standing. Uh, Communities would be strengthened to articulate what they need and fit it into the whole. And um, so there will be a place for um, communities to make really uh, more detailed plans um, that would actually move forward, right? Because right now we have a city where there's a tremendous effort um, being put forth uh, in communities uh, by folks who are fighting for what is right and for what they need, and what's happening is, is there's no place in our system for those to be taken up and moved forward.
0: And, and I think that kind of goes to the rubber meets the road question. A lot of people have, have said about the current system, and people would ask about the comprehensive system, which is what is the role of the community voice? And and if you know communities now... See proposals for more density, more residents moving into the neighborhood, and and say uh, say no, or say you know we would we would really prefer not to have that. And other folks will say, well, the city needs to grow; we need to put the fo- the people somewhere. Uh, under a comprehensive planning system, you know what what role would communities have to have uh, ownership and decision making power? How would how would that be resolved? Right. Um, so part
2: of what's happening now is that uh, the city's just coming to town and telling folks whether you're a wealthier, wider community, or whether you're a low-income community of color that, hey, here's what the citywide need is. We determined it in our back room. We didn't ask you about it, but trust us, it's right, and then this action that we're doing is in line with what we're telling you that policy or priority is. And that might or might not be accurate. People are going to have different perspectives on it. But there's a situation where we are not, as a city, being engaged in what the citywide goals are, right? We're just being told that different actions are in the service of citywide goals. So if both – create the comprehensive planning framework creates um, the opportunity and the responsibility for people to participate in the creation of the citywide goals, right? And then in the distribution of how we meet those goals, communities again get to say, right, okay – Here, within my community, because I understand, right, that the creation of deeply affordable housing um, is desperately needed and that my district doesn't get to say no to that, right? But what I do get to do is say yes to here's where it will work best in this community, right? And here's how we can integrate and support it, right? Um, And I actually get to be a part of it, and I don't get to be exclusionary and say no, right? um, to lower income folks or no to people of color. Right. And for lower income communities of color, they get to say, all right, here's our longstanding unmet needs. Right. Um, that for decades we've been asking the city to address, right. We would like to see these prioritized in our budgeting process because that's another thing that's happening is the so-called planning processes are totally divorced and separated from budgeting. Um,
1: I'm glad you raised that because that's, that's a very, yeah. very key point in this discussion. Is the mm-hmm. integration of planning and budgeting that is really missing um, in the current framework?
2: Yes, absolutely, and it's partly because we're not, we're not aiming at it, right? So I think one of the critiques that we heard of um, comprehensive planning uh, in front of the commission was, "Oh, these folks think it's just going to solve all the problems." Of course, it's not going to solve all the problems. But what it will do is create a transparent and accountable process to say, okay, here's what we say we're aiming at, right? Um, And this is how we are budgeting. How do those align? There actually is no place where that occurs currently. So each individual rezoning or land use action is taken as though it exists in a vacuum and is not part of the larger whole. And that means, in practice, what it has meant is that we're going down a path that is exacerbating inequality as opposed to lessening it, right? What's, and we don't even have the common data um, to uh, discuss that intelligently.
1: What's your response to the critique of this proposal for comprehensive planning that this would be a huge, huge amount of work, a major, major lift, and then basically pretty quickly once a plan is crafted, it be, it becomes outdated? Um you know, there there's folks who might agree on some of the broader principles here and goals, but that just logistically it might not make a lot of sense.
2: I think it's a load of bull hooky. <laughs> you know, we can we can do this, right? I think right now a tremendous amount of effort is being put out in running completely separate so called participatory processes and then wondering why nobody comes out, right? So if we want one NYC to be participatory, and if we want um, the fair housing process where we live to be participatory, we're calling people out on two separate occasions to do things disconnected from their whole. There's a whole lot of energy being wasted now. I think we can design a right-sized system for the city of New York that is the right kind of engagement um, that lets us set the high-level goals, sets up the mechanisms that build on what's good that currently exists, knits them together into a system of accountability and ties it to our budget and says we have to point at what we want to accomplish. We cannot pretend um, that not paying attention to any of it is going to have us meet the great needs that we have today and set us up for our future needs.
0: So Elena, one thing that's come up in in all the Charter Revision Commission's discussions is the balance of power among different players in city government. It's something the revision's looking at in terms of, you know, borough presidents versus city council members and community boards versus the mayor. And one of the critiques that was raised about comprehensive planning is, you know, New York City has a strong mayor system. That's our fundamental orientation of government. There are a lot of reasons for that. It's proven to be somewhat successful over the past many decades. Would this comprehensive planning process reduce the power of the mayor to sort of set the course for the city?
2: In some ways, it would in the sense that communities would get stronger and clearer voices. But I think that in other ways, it would actually strengthen the ability of us all to go in one direction, which is supposed to be what the power of the executive provides, right? Um, But frankly, the level of discord um, that uh, exists is the people's expression of the fact that this system is not working. And so we know that we're not meeting um, a number of really key goals that I think that the mayor's office would, you know, embrace, right? Which is the need for... uh, Integrative neighborhoods, deeply affordable housing to prevent displacement. I think all of those things are things that the mayor's office um, would say that they're trying to achieve. I don't think that they're being necessarily um, uh, fully honest in uh, how far away from uh, what we need to do we are currently doing, and that this is a process altogether would better meet the executive um, uh, goals. To really govern for all instead of govern for the few and making the low-income communities of color bear the, the burden of um, sort of the failures of the top-down system just because they're seen as uh, politically expedient places um, to advance things.
0: Well, it's a fascinating conversation, and Elena, thank you so much for cluing us into it. Uh, we've been listening to and speaking with Elena Conte from the Pratt Center. She's the director of policy there. Thanks so much for joining, Max
1: and Murphy. Thank you.
0: And we'll be right back. Thank you
1: so much. You're listening to Max and Murphy on WBAI 99.5 FM and WBAI.org. Listener sponsored non-commercial radio. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette here with Jarrett Murphy from City Limits. We were just talking charter revision and comprehensive city planning planning. Uh, a couple of thoughts from you. You had a really good in-depth piece on this issue at City Thank Limits. Um, what are your general thoughts? You know, we have a minute or two before we bring on Bronx Borough President Ruben Diaz Jr. Where are you at right now on this question of comprehensive city planning as a requirement in the charter that's that's possibly going to be proposed?
0: I think it's a it's a timely discussion. I mean, I think it is a is a big step, um, a, a fateful step for the city to take. But obviously, with Concerns about how the city is growing, whether that growth is equitable, you hear that on a very passionate level, neighborhood after neighborhood. That people feel as though they are being not that they're being asked to grow, but that they are being asked to shoulder a burden that others have not been. Uh, is something you hear, and it is affecting not just those conversations, but people's overall sense of whether the city is fair, whether it's proceeding to or retreating from Bill de Blasio's ideal of the fairest city in the country. With climate change bearing down, uh, other changes facing the city. The the need for uh, a big picture approach. Is going to become greater. uh, Whether this framework is the way to approach it or not, I don't know. I will say that, you know, in our own coverage of this stuff, we're trying to pull back from talking parcel to parcel and rezoning to rezoning and look at bigger picture issues. And that's why we have this new project at citylimits.org called Mapping the Future. You know, this is something that you can cover um, house by house and apartment by apartment or the city in the city. And we do that. But we also want to look at some of the deeper stuff that's going on to shape um, the housing crisis and other pressures that we're seeing. So that's something folks can, can check out if they like.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm very interested in this concept, um, but I also do think, as one of my questions got at, you know, the practicalities of it seem very challenging. And this question that someone like Carl Weisbrod, who's a longtime city government um, uh, player and planner, you know, has seen as impractical, and maybe he just likes the way it's been done. But you know, there there are real questions about that. All right, let's put off general city planning for the moment. We're going to welcome on in a moment Bronx Borough President Ruben Diaz Jr. Uh, He has been vocal of late opposing Mayor de Blasio's plan for a certain jail site in the Bronx. We're going to ask him about that. He has a a preference for a different site for a a jail in the Bronx as the plan to close Rikers Island moves forward. He's had... uh, a recent development report come out where the Bronx uh, clearly is is booming and is developing rapidly and has been a, a hallmark of his tenure as borough president. And obviously, he's planning to run for mayor in 2021. So we'll ask him about all that and more when he joins us.